Welcome to a special edition of BioCentury This Week. Today we're zeroing in on the collapse of SVB and what it means for biotech. I'm Jeff Cranmer, Executive Editor of BioCentury, and I'm joined by our Editor-in-Chief, Simone Fishburn in Washington, and Stephen Hansen, our UK-based Director of Biopharma Intelligence. Well, it's a week after the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank, and while the dust has far from settled, we're fortunately well removed from the panic that gripped the biotech sector a week ago. Simone, Stephen, you've been working the phones all week, talking to VCs, talking to executives. I'd like to start off with what the priority actions that companies and VCs have been taking this week. What are you hearing? Stephen, I'd like to start with you. You just put out a story yesterday on this very topic. Yeah, thanks, Jeff. Um, so I was on the phone with, uh, as well as Simone was as well, with talking to lots of VCs, really about what, I guess, starting with a very rather basic premise. What are the three most important things that you need to figure out in the wake of SVB's collapse basically over the next two weeks. That was really the starting point for every single one of those conversations. And I think there, there, there was common threads through a lot of it, but really the consensus, of, at least for me in my conversations, the top priority was getting the banking, sort of the bank accounts, the really practical operational aspects of your bank accounts sorted out ASAP. So you know, for them, that involved not only a week ago getting the money out of SVB, um, which maybe is another topic altogether, but then figuring out where that money is going to go and then going forward, how you're going to, you know, what the treasury policy is that you're going to implement to basically manage that. So, you know, almost everyone said you need a minimum of two bank accounts. I had a lot of people saying that really two accounts at two separate banks was probably the max you could expect for most companies just from a complexity standpoint. But then, you know, lots of discussions around whether those are just deposit accounts or do you have them in money market accounts, you know, putting what percentage of, of your operational funds into very short term treasuries, um, you know, all these different aspects that really go into basically how you best safeguard your capital going forward and trying to avoid being caught out, you know, in this. Yeah, let me let me jump in. I think it's fair to say that there's still a fair amount of shell shock across the system, the ecosystem, right? Mm, yeah. um, we can talk about what people are saying, but I just wanted to follow up on something you said, Stephen, because first of all, there were some companies that didn't get their money out in time. Well, didn't get their money out, I shouldn't say in time, right? <laughs> there were some companies that did get their money out. And then there are other companies that some that might not have even been in SVB altogether. But all of the things you said are now relevant to everybody. That's right. So everybody knows if you had everything in SVB, you got to go and find at least a second bank. Mm -hmm. I actually, you say at least, I did hear people sort of talking between two and four banks. I think the okay. other thing we have to remember is that it depends on the size of your company, mm. right? And you, the, the, the rules sort of apply whether you're this really small company, which is what SVB was really good at. When I say was really good at, what I mean is SVP, SVB provided a home when many other banks wouldn't. So if you have $3 million, you know, what we're hearing is JP Morgan isn't going to talk to you. BLA isn't going to talk to you. They're, you know, you're chopped liver, really. If they're listening to this, they may not like to hear that. So they may, 
you know, I think about that. <laughs> hopefully, um, hopefully they'll no longer have that view, but uh, that was the perception <laughs> yeah. for sure. You're right. Yeah, but but certainly that has been the case. And then obviously there are a lot of companies that maybe started out in that thing. And we know this, SVB has been around for 40 years. Mm-hmm. So they, they started out there, they grew and they just kept their business in SVB. So there were a lot of companies that were not even that small. We know this also outside of biotech, that that was true. And I think that the way they respond, the general idea will be the same and the details will be different. If you're a bigger company, sure, you can go to a bigger bank because they'll take you more seriously. Yeah. So what are the challenges for the smaller companies getting there, Stephen? I think the challenges are going to be, I mean, (laughs) finding new banking relationships. And I think as Simone just said, you know, having a small company come to one of these really large banks. I mean, I was told that really, unless there is a or at least historically, unless there was a capital markets or sort of transactional interest at the large bulge bracket banks for these companies, you know, if they were in a really hot area or if they had a really hot asset, then maybe there would be a reason to pay attention to them. But if you're a startup and you've just raised your 10 million seed round, there was not, there was nothing, it was not a lucrative enough business to just have them as a banking partner to bring those companies on. And not only that, I mean, the other challenge is just the time. What a lot of people were saying was that it could take you three months. I heard people saying it could take six months to get some of these accounts up and running. One of the VCs was telling me that one of the jobs that their CFO does is create shell companies. And the moment you create the shell company, you're immediately putting in an application for a bank account just so that when you do come up with a new company idea or you do have an asset you want to invest in, you have a company with a bank account available because they don't want to have to wait three months, four months, five months to have a bank account set up to get that new co up and running. I know that a lot of, um, you know, there was, from the sounds of it, it sounds like, you know, a lot of other banks really did a lot of work to try and expedite those application processes, you know, for, for people in this sort of emergency type of situation. But, you know, I think there's also some hope that those processes can be simplified or you can find a way that they're not going to take three to six months. But I think that that's, you know, that that's going to be one of the challenges here for, for companies switching over. And I think one of the things that is really clear from this is what a massive role the VCs play in this um, situation. So let's go back to your small company or your new co. And quite often these might be academic innovators or something like this. They don't know banking laws. They don't know where to go. And they're also not going to be able just to walk in. So the VCs are really, really instrumental in um, that initial bank selection and their relationship that they had with SVB, as well as SVB's ability to look at a technology, to look at a company and understand the risk. Because SVB is not making loans or doing business against collateral that exists right now. It's really doing it against hmm. future collateral. Right. That was and, a specialty. And other banks want to yep. see what have you actually got. And, well, and that, that's and talking that's, about the lo- the venture debt, right? The loan yep. side of it, which also SVB did. Well, and, and, and I would I would almost even rephrase it. I think what made SVB maybe sort of different, especially for our sector, was their ability to assess the opportunity, not just the risk, but the opportunity right. that was there and to be able to envision how taking on just a $5 million deposit, you know, just as a banking partner to begin with, there could be the opportunities going forward for them to grow with that company. Whereas I think that's the complaint about a lot of other banks that maybe don't have the same 
level of proficiency in a sector like you know the life sciences or biotech is that they don't assess the opportunity they simply assess the risk and it is as we all say it's a very high risk sector so so that makes it you know much more difficult i think to get on board and have the same type of relationship with bank x y or z in another setting as as it would have with svb and i just want to make it clear to our listeners that we're really just focusing on what this means for biotech this is not a statement about whether SVB should have run itself better, um, <laughs> whether people should have withdrawn their money or not. There's no judgments that we're making, at least on this call, about that. But it's really more, even the VCs that I've spoken to who didn't do all of their business with SVB, and I think there was especially some that are not in the US, may have worked elsewhere, absolutely everybody sees their pivotal role. So I don't know mm. how many VCs had zero business with SVB, but you know they all syndicate and to some degree, probably most of them have some portfolio companies. It's really more, what is the hole that has to be filled that is gone? And there are other banks that operate in this space. Just I don't think anybody else had such a big footprint. So what, what one of the areas that I, you know, that came up on a couple conversations with me where that it's not, you know, I don't think any anything was wholly unique to SVB, but one of the things that I think they were quite proficient in was different ways in which they work with the venture funds themselves. I know, Simone, we've been working on that a lot uh, the last couple of days here. But, you know, one in particular that got called out to me as being one of the specialties was around um, uh, GP commitment financing. So this is only something that really applies to younger funds. You know, if you're in your first fund, maybe your second fund. And I should give a little call out to uh, Dima Kuzman at 4BioCapital, who's kind of been my tutor in this area for a little bit over the past week or so. You know, for a lot of these general partners, because you haven't had a long you know, track record of, of, of making money in, uh, you know, with your funds, you don't necessarily have enough capital laying around to meet the 2% GP commitments that you would need to for your next fund. And so a way to get on with doing your financing is to turn to a bank and get a loan that can cover that GP commitment. And, you know, then once you have your carry from that fund or some of the management fees come through, then you can start to pay off that that commitment. And it's something that just helps sort of smooth and get you on to your next fundraising that makes it really challenging if there's not as many instruments like that available. And so that's something that people were, I guess, a little concerned about was how easy would it be to find other banks that'd be willing to offer those sorts of instruments? So I want to talk about another one. But first of all, Stephen... If you're giving a shout out, I have to give a shout out to my husband, who's given <laughs> yes, me a do. crash course in banking. <laughs> uh, I think should have got a byline on a whole bunch of stories. But basically, I think, um, yeah, that we've all learned a lot of things we didn't know. And I think one thing that I, you know, you and I are working on that we wanted to walk our listeners through is actually the way that it works. So the VCs, you know, and this is uh, from talking with VCs last week. Many of them, it's not their own personal exposure. So a lot of VCs do not have, don't want to keep big cash accounts in SVB, right? What they do, walking through the way it works is so VP, VCs, their general partners, they go out and they raise money from limited partners, from their LPs. That money, they, they create a fund. That money isn't sent all at the beginning. That money sits with the LPs. And then the VCs, and for a very important reason, 
let's say they, you know, they go around and they find companies that they want to invest in. They may exist already or they may be new companies. So they want to put off for as long as possible calling on the LPs, what's called a capital call, to send money over. That capital call will be a certain percentage of the overall fund. One of the reasons they want to put that off for as long as possible is that the minute the money goes out of the LP account is when the clock starts ticking on their IRR. That is the um, metric by which LPs look at how well did their investment go. And so what Silicon Valley Bank would do is it would offer VCs a certain loan for a short-term loan, maybe three to six months. So it would offer the VCs this, this line of credit, basically a loan. The VCs could fund their small companies then. Uh, meanwhile, they go out and get the funds in this capital call from the LPs and SVB acts as an administrator there. So it's actually collecting the money from the LPs. It's gathering it into a custodial account. And then if it's either repaying the, the loan or sending it out to the VCs. You know, these are pretty tailored services that are partly custodial, not even just sort of bank services. And that flow of funds is true whether or not the VC takes this loan, this short-term loan. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you know, and, and, and from, from my conversations, um, you know, again, don't think this sort of uh, service or offering was unique to SVB, but it was definitely popular. Like I had lots of people telling me that by their estimates, I mean, I, I don't think SVB disclosed any of these details, but I mean, I had plenty of VCs telling me that they thought there were hundreds of VCs who worked with SVB in this in this way, in terms of having them as an administrator for, for doing capital calls. So- Right. Well, the other thing is that another sort of VC explained to me that it's kind of problematic for a VC to have to work with multiple banks on this. Because then those banks have to start coordinating between them, which one is going to, you know, you need one place to be the administrator. So that's, that's I right. think, how it was able to build, you know, once you get a critical mass, you can be the, you know, bank of choice, because mm -hmm. it just makes it easier for everybody. That's so now right. they have to offset that, making it easier with, where do I want to do my business? And by the way, that brings us to another issue that's come up and going to continue coming up. We have seen that the CEO of the Silicon Valley Bridge Bank, which is for the moment the successor to Silicon Valley Bank, uh, he is calling on investors and companies to stay with that bank. And I think there are different opinions out there about what it would make for people to, you know, what it would take for VCs and companies to go back or to remain with the successor bank. Because some of, you know, we had a whole bunch of VCs, right, that signed a letter saying, we'll stay with you, you know, keep this mm. precious thing alive, we'll stay with you. So Stephen, what are you hearing about that, you know, would make investors send their portfolios back there? I mean, well, I, I mean, obviously that the 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 tone of those conversations changed a lot over over last weekend, right? When, um, you know, feelings on Friday were very different from from what people were saying on, uh, you know, Monday and Tuesday after, um, you know, the, the regulators had stepped in and backstopped everything. So, um, there's probably a bit, hmm, probably a bit more of a sense of of probably op I would maybe say openness to go back, but I, I think people are still wanting to kind of wait and see how some of this stuff plays out. I mean, you know, I think even 
getting a feel for what happens to the parent company, you know, that's now filed for chapter 11. Just that I think there's still, while kind of, in my mind, the, kind of the acute phase of, of the crisis is over, there's still going to be a slow burn to this that um, I think people are probably going to want to see a bit more play out here before they maybe make some of those decisions. Right. And I think we should acknowledge, so in the UK, very fast HSBC That's true. You know, bought it. And so now with the UK Silicon Valley, they know who the owners are. They know what mm-hmm. they're dealing with. That's right. They can like it or not take it. It's a very big bank, but it's very stable. Mm-hmm. I did have some people say to me, it really boils down to who the new owners are. Right, and, right. Um, you know, that is something that I think a week ago or even Monday, Tuesday, we didn't know if that was going to be resolved. Obviously, it's not yet resolved. Mm-hmm. Right? So right, and right. we know how long that'll take. Yeah. No, I think that's so you, right. you have a sense of what some of the long-term effects on the ecosystem are going to be? Or do we still have a lot left to shake out? No, I think there's some, let's call it short long-term <laughs> you know, we That's so we one. know that, that it was kind of a, a really down market anyway, right? I, I had one person say to me, this just reopens the wound. So if mm. anybody thought the when any whatever anybody thought they had in terms of runway, they now need more. So when does the IP window open? People may have different opinions, but most people agree that it's gonna take longer. The cost of capital, everyone agrees that's gone up. I don't know if everyone agrees by the same amount. Um, and then I guess, uh, Stephen, the one other thing that everybody is waiting to see and making their own bets on is what the Fed does with interest rates. We've seen right. what the European Bank did. So that is going to also have an effect. But frankly, I think it, it's almost baked in at the moment. I don't think mm. that there's a move that the Fed could make that would make everybody think, oh, cool, this is over in a few months. <laughs> yeah. I think they could only make something um, to have a huge hike. Then I think everybody's going to be really worried. Did, did, for, I mean, for me, I think the biggest and, and the broadest implication here is just the fact that, as you say, I mean, we're, we're already in a, in a period where for many companies, time and cash are already getting short. And adding on this layer, as we talked about at the top, you know, of needing to diversify your bank accounts, needing to put new things in place. That costs time, that costs money with lawyers and all that stuff. And and so it just makes what is already a short runway even shorter. And so um, I, I think that's what, you know, management teams are grappling with now is how much shorter is that is that runway getting and what can we do to try and try and re- re-extend that. And so I think that's that's the real. And there, Jeff, is where you get to maybe the longer, longer term. OK, so one question is, are more companies going to go out of business? than would have done, right? Yeah. Are we going to suddenly have new company formation dry up? Mm. Um, people have said to me not dry up, but, you know, there's, there's sort of a feeling that VCs are busy with a lot of stuff right now. I think there's one other thing that I want to allude to, which I sort of raised in the podcast earlier this week. You know, a lot of companies went through, um, they did their disaster scenarios. Now they're revisiting those of what do you do if you cut everything back? And I already know this to be the case in some companies inside tech and inside biotech, that decisions, for example, maybe they're going to cut down on some staffing or some C-level people or whatever it was, decisions that might have happened anyway are getting expedited. So mm-hmm. I think that to Stephen's point, whatever the runway is, it just got shorter. That means you've got less time to make those decisions. 
If you were thinking, let's wait until the end of the quarter or the half to see how this plays out and then cut funding, maybe you do that now. So I think that there are decisions going on right now with people tightening their belts. And then, and then we're going to see whether that actually ends up sort of landing in the right place or just pushing disasters out even more. It's very difficult to balance, right? What do you keep versus what do you throw out and, and still grow your company? Really difficult. All right. Well, clearly uh, a lot left to shake out. Um, we are going to be very closely following uh, what this means for our small biotechs out there, uh, how VCs are thinking through the situation as it evolves, and what the short long-term effects and the long long-term effects might be for the sector, as Simone has put it. You can find our content up on biocentury.com. If you dig back into the panic mode of last Friday, uh, Stephen has a nice piece on what VCs were advising their portfolio companies to do in real time. On Monday, Simone had a letter from the editor on the, the fallout. Uh, she took a look at the immediate and longer term impact of the bank's collapse on biotech. Our colleague uh, Edwin uh, Zhang did a piece on diversification and diligence becoming biotech's new buzzwords in banking. And Stephen's piece from yesterday, our, our top story, of course, which we started the pod with today, but if you want to dig in further, what are VCs prioritizing as next steps right now? And uh, all good stuff to dig into. You can find it in our feed. You can find it on our Hot Topics Bear Market page. And uh, look forward to the days of the bull market coming back. It didn't seem that long ago, but boy, has this been an adventure lately. Two upcoming BioCentury events to tell you about before we go. Uh, first and foremost, um, the other really big topic right now, of course, Inflation Reduction Act. We saw some action out of the White House, out of CMS this week, uh, sketching out further details on what the impact might be. We will have a webinar moderated by our colleague Steve Usden, our Washington editor, on the Inflation Reduction Act on Thursday, March 30th. Go to biocenturyira.com to learn more. And of course, our spring conference uh, coming up in Dublin in May, Bioequity Europe. Go ahead and register at bioequityeurope.com. Last year's event in Milan sold out. Thanks for tuning in, Stephen. And Simone, thanks for your insights. As always, Kendall Square Orchestra provides the music for this podcast. The group connects science and technology professionals and other members of the greater Boston community to collaborate, innovate, and inspire through music while supporting causes related to healthcare and education.